You're listening to a sermon from Together Church in Hobart. We're a place to belong and a place to explore belief in Jesus. If you'd like to connect with us or find out more about our missional communities, please visit togetherchurch.com.au. So today we start a new sermon series called A Life Well Lived. And I'm really excited about sharing this series and it's been on my heart for a while. And it's really great to start something at the beginning of the new year. And it's a series about life and discipleship and about how to live well in the way of Jesus. So look, in the Gospel of John, Jesus gave this amazing promise to those who follow him. He said this, Uh, that I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. You know, it's a really beautiful promise. There's another translation from John 10.10 from the New King James Version, and it says this, that I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And I, I really love that word abundant. You know, that is what life is meant to be about. It's not meant to be ordinary. It's not meant to be draining or dull. It's meant to be kind of rich and full. Uh, It's meant to be abundant. Uh, There's one more version, uh, a newer version from the, the Passion Translation, and it says this again. I have come to give you everything in abundance. So there's that word again. I've come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. Now, I don't know about you. I want that type of life. You know, my, my guess is that you want that type of life as well, not just for yourself, but, but for you and your friends and family and community and, and city, even nation. But, but, what, but what is abundant life? And, and what might it mean to live well? You know, before we answer this question, I think we need to form an understanding about what it means to live the good life what is our imagination of the good life? What is our vision of the good life? What, what are the things that we have on our heart and uh, the things we have in our mind about what it means to live a life well lived? Uh, so look, for me, it might be being physically strong. It might be, uh, I, I want to be a great dad. I want to have inner peace. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear from you. What, what are some aspects of what it means for you to live a good life? Okay, so look, there's been lots of different uh, things shared. You know, people want to have inner peace and not have anxiety. They want to have a great family and be part of community. Uh, they want to be uh, able to have options and they want to be self, uh, have great and meaningful work. You know, so there are so many ideas about what a good life could be. And look, our culture throws up so many ideas about the good life, about what it means to live well. You know, we're told in our culture that uh, we need to have certain things, that we should desire certain things uh, to be healthy and happy and whole. Well, basically, there are lots and lots and lots of options, and it can be overwhelming. So, you know, it could be wealth, it could be travel, fame, sex, family, adventure, fashion. There's just so much that we should do if we are to live the good life according to our cultures. And, and uh, I suppose... It's easy to become paralyzed and confused by all these many, many options given to us. You know, should we eat activated nuts? Uh, Should we travel 10 countries in 10 years? Uh, Should we write a gratitude journal? 
Should we have ethical shares? Should we use less plastic? Should we buy a Hummer? You know, should we go to the gym? Should we watch Peaky Blinders? You know, there's so much stuff that we're told leads to the good life, and it's really confusing to kind of work out what do I pick and how do I make my life count? Um, and I suppose the question I have is how do we make the decision about what to do and what not to do if we want to live well? What's our reference point? And, and look, secular culture is challenging. Now, I call it secularism. Um, and it's a, it's a methodology, it's a way of seeing the world. And, and secularism basically says that your life is your own. And uh, so the way to a good life is to believe in yourself, to follow your heart, to trust in your own judgments, uh, and, and to follow your feelings. Luke Skywalker. Uh, and, and basically it says don't follow tradition, don't follow others, don't follow... Um, those who have come before you, actually you are an individual and only you can make decisions about how to live a good life. It's really the culture of me. And, and in this secular world, we throw up a bunch of life hacks and a bunch of options, as we described before, usually which cost money uh, or involve the consumption of experiences and stuff. And, and then we're told to create our own values, to pave our own path, to find our own frameworks, and to be our own authority and to discover on our own how to live a good life. And that is the predominant message of our Western world. Uh, but the question I have when I look at the question, how do you live a good life, uh, what's a life well lived, is really the question, is this true? Does it work? And is it the only way? Hmm. Yes, Lord. Um, so, so look, just imagine, okay? Imagine if you took... This is what happens if I have a month off. All right. Uh, uh, imagine if you took this same approach in other areas of your life. It's actually a little absurd if you think about it. Okay, so we're going to go to the doctor, okay? We're going to the doctor, and rather, being trained, rather than being trained in the frameworks and practices of medicine, you know, knowledge accumulated over thousands of years, uh, they have attended a new special university that says you should follow your feelings and you should trust your heart and discover your own way forward in medicine. You know, is that the person you want to have cut you open on the surgery table? No, it's probably not, is it? You know, I don't want a surgeon who invents their own methods. I want someone trained in the ways and practices of surgery, uh, someone who is taught uh, how to do medicine based on the accumulated knowledge of many, many people over many years. Uh, so look, pick another area of life. I thought of music as another classic. You know, like, you want to learn the guitar, and you go to a music teacher, but rather than teach you a systematic approach to music and say, this is the tr tradition, these are the frameworks, this is the notage, uh, I don't know if that's a term, uh, <laughs> the, the, the music teacher says, trust your feelings, be your own authority, you're very, very talented, go for it. <laughs> yes, it's like, even if you're talented, it's not necessarily going to work, is it? Because, because millions of people have tried and failed and reflected and then tried differently, in order to create a framework and methods of music that actually work. And it's a bit foolish to ignore all of that and just be your own authority. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? But the thing about it is that if you look at teachers or nurses or project managers or engineers, basically if you look at almost all professions, uh, we all have a pedagogy of practice, which means we have methods and frameworks passed down from hundreds of people over thousands of years that teach us the best ways to do particular things to save us making all the mistakes of generations that have come before us. 
Um, and even parenting, you know, there are best practices when it comes to parenting. I, I wrote best practices in, and this is what I came up with. Uh, <laughs> so, look, I mean, when it comes to parenting, obviously there are different culture, there are different cultures, there are different methods that work. There's not one method, but but certainly there are some methods that work better for parenting than others. Uh, you know, spending time with your children, uh, feeding them apparently is good for them. Uh, you know, making sure that you are emotionally available, that they actually have routine and sleep. You know, these are, these are generally things that make better parents and, and help you to raise emotionally stable children. Uh, whereas yelling and manipulating and not feeding and locking them in dark rooms or neglecting them is meant to be bad for them, so I hear. Um, so look, if your aim is to raise healthy children, then you know, you, again, you want to learn from those before you. So look, I've said a lot of stuff, but I suppose my point is, why is it so different the way our culture looks at uh, what it means to live a life well lived? You know, when it comes to our own lives, when it comes particularly to spirituality, we say there are no rules, there are no, there are no things that you can learn from, follow your heart, be true to yourself, and you'll discover the right way. And it doesn't make sense. Uh, why not seek the wisdom of others? Why not lean into the experience of those who have come before you to discover what it means to live a full and rich and healthy life? So basically, why not go, not go alone? So but one of the things, one of the things about a life well lived, I believe, is that a life well lived is a spiritual life. You know, amongst other things, you know, we, we have so um, separated spirituality from real life in the West that, that we've divided it, we've compartmentalized it, and, and we've kind of made spirituality something that we can add into our consumer existence if we so desire. But I don't believe that that is the secret to a life well lived. Uh, look, there's this Aussie bloke uh, called Pierre. Telhard de Chardin, I think that's an Aussie name, um, and he says this, okay, so we are not human, I'm being silly, here we are, I just can't pronounce it, so um, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, but we are spiritual beings having a human experience. You may have heard that before, you know, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, but are spiritual beings having a human experience. And look, there comes a point in one's life where just having more and doing more it just doesn't cut it. Like There comes a point where we need to lift our head and our eyes up and think about the existential, think about the transcendent and, and um, you know, deeply spiritually connect with one another, uh, with our environment, with God. Uh, and, and we're made with a yearning for meaning. We are meaning-made humans and we desire to be spiritual in our very heart and bones. We can't just compartmentalise it and say, that's what I do on Tuesday at 2 o'clock when I do yoga. Do you know what I mean? And, and so part of what it means to live a life well lived is to be spiritual in our being. Uh, and, and look, it's, it's important. I mean, I've got here, the atheists might challenge us. I've heard an atheist say that we are meaningless dust in a meaningless universe, uh, that we are portable plumbing, that we are a collection of atoms. And there's something beautiful in that but I just don't believe that's who we are. We don't believe it's who we are. There's something more, and there's something beautiful. Uh, we are spiritual beings in a spiritual universe, and uh, it is so beautiful and rich to explore the texture of what that means in your everyday life. But, and here's a question, I suppose, but, but if you want to live a life that's well-lived, who do you follow? Who do you mimic? Who do you learn from? 
You know, what are the ways that you practice? What are the experiences that you, you walk under to experience the whole life? And, and this is where the challenge, I think, is hard for us because we don't know what framework or model to apply in the West because we're all called to make up our own way. And look, we really struggle with trusting people. We struggle with trusting organisations, with traditions, with institutions. It's embedded in our DNA to you know, rebel and to question the man behind the curtain, as Cicero said. Uh, and, and so when we, and it's true, when we put our trust in people, particularly when we put our trust in groups and organisations, you get disappointed because everyone is broken. You know, there are great struggles and um, faults in the best of us and all of us are broken. You know, celebrities and politicians, you know, certainly priests have disappointed us and the new priests, which are psychologists, you know, whoever we look to, um, they're broken. And so who do you put your trust in and who do you follow? So I suppose I've been asking, what, what if? What if there was a, perf, a person that you could follow who was perfect? And what if there was a human who started life well but also ended life well? And what if you know, they lived a good life not just kind of on camera, but they, looked, they lived a good life off camera as well? And, and what if it was someone who you could meet who was actually accessible to you? who you could talk with and cry with and wrestle with, who you could model your life on in order to learn how to live wise choices out in your life and, and how to, I suppose, make informed decisions about how to live in a hyper-consumer world. You know, it's, I suppose, what if that person not only lived well in this life, what if they lived forever? And what if they had wisdom and authority that was beyond this world and into eternity? Now, look, obviously you know who I'm talking about because the church that gives away the punchline. Um, but, you know, would you want to know them and would you want to learn from them in the search of a good life? Did you follow? And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I'm talking of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, our saviour, our founder, and, but he was fully human and he was fully God. And he invited us to follow him and to be more like him and he promised us abundant life, both in this life and the one beyond, as we step in his step and as we walk in his ways. And this is called discipleship. Okay, So this is what discipleship is. Discipleship is uh, something I'm going to talk about more over the next few sessions. But, uh, it's, and it's not just a method, it's a relationship. It's, it's about being a learner or an apprentice of Jesus, uh, about following his words his works and his ways to become more and more like him. Dallas Willard, who is a theologian, here's this beautiful line. I really like this definition of discipleship. He says that discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. We can't be exactly like Jesus, but we can become the person who Jesus would be if he were you and I. And, and it's a really good definition of discipleship. Essentially, uh, being an apprentice and learning to live an abundant life is not just believing something about Jesus, it is learning to walk in his ways and following his words and applying his principles into your very life. And as you do, things change. And this is what I want to talk about in this series. Yeah? Okay. So look, very briefly, there are three reasons why I believe that if you're looking for someone to model your life on out of the myriad of options available to you, then uh, Jesus is a good start. He's a smart choice. So firstly, Jesus is a wise and learned teacher. 
Now, most people, like most people, even if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, would agree that Jesus was a wise and learned teacher. You know, many people believe he was the wisest person who ever walked the earth. His life, his practices, uh, his teachings have absolutely transformed our culture. They've left an indelible mark on humanity. We can't like we, it's, it's, it's just true. Um, ideas that we take for granted in the Western world come from Jesus. His life has shaped our culture so deeply that it is very hard to underestimate the impact of Jesus on our Australian culture, even today. So there are values that we hold dear as Aussies. Uh, humility, social justice, human rights, equality, non-violent resistance, social welfare, capitalism, tolerance, progress. You know, these are ideas that deeply are influenced by Jesus and they arose in the West because of his teachings and because of his people. You know, something like progress, right? We just assume, we have progressives, we have conservatives, but all of us believe that the world is moving somewhere and that we can advance ourselves, which is the foundation of science. That didn't arise in the East, where the world is karmic and it goes in circles. It didn't arise in the Middle East, where it's inshallah, everything is kind of left to fate. It is the Christian worldview that created progress. You know, there are so many things that are just foundational to how we think and who we are that come from this wonderful person, Jesus. So look, if you've never read the Gospels, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But I think that uh, Jesus is worth listening listening to because of uh, what he taught. Uh, the second thing is human experience. You know, billions of people over thousands of years have followed Jesus and they have discovered what they would call abundant life through the person of Nazareth. And uh, look, not, I admit, not every person who follows Jesus or says that they follow Jesus is a person whose life you want to mimic. You know, there are plenty of people who say they believe in Jesus who you wouldn't want to mimic at all. Um, but there are many, many, many people who have followed Jesus Jesus and experienced hope and joy and life and love and human experience says that he is worth following. Uh, but lastly, and I think most importantly, uh, Jesus has something that teachers and leaders, uh, influencers all around the world don't have. Uh, he has something that uh, makes him stand out from the crowd. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And that's really, really important. Um, there are great historical records that Jesus rose from the dead and that he met thousands of people, he ate fish with people, he talked with them, he walked with them, and then he was ascended to heaven. Uh, there are great historical records and, and the people he met, their lives were transformed and it led to the transformation of culture and society as we know it. And I think because he rose from the dead, he's worth listening to. <laughs> um, you know, rose from the dead, it's interesting. You know, We hear that word and it just kind of... Oh, Jesus rose from the dead, and you know there are fairy tales. But, but I mean, that's the, Jesus rose from the dead, and it, it it really is worth holding this and and paying attention. Now, I was thinking if if you put, let's say, Annabelle Crabb, all right, and Jordan Peterson, uh, Sarah Wilson, Bono, and uh, Greta Thunberg, okay, we'll put them in a room, very wise people of our age, and uh, and added Jesus into the mix, it would be a pretty strange dinner party. Um, and said, okay, everyone, you need to choose someone who you want to model your life on in order to live a life well lived. Now, who do you pick? You know, there's lots of good ideas in these guys, and they're great people, but seriously, you go with the guy who rose from the dead, don't you? The person who died and came alive again. 
That's the person you choose. It's kind of a no-brainer. Um, it's funny, I went walking with my kids at Mount Field, and they're into this, like, I had hours and hours of walking with the boys, and they suddenly got into this kind of thing, these kind of either-or options, you know. So, Dad, you know, let's play either-or. Would you rather eat a poo or have a superpower and not eat a poo? Oh, that's a hard choice, because eating a poo is pretty disgusting, but, you know, to fly, how cool would that be? Pretty tricky. But you know, what's not difficult is do you go with the person who dies and stays dead or the person who dies and rises from the dead and says, I am God, come and follow me. Do you know what I'm saying? So anyway, I'm getting carried away. All right, so, so my point is, my point is if you want to live a good life, by the way, I would eat a poo and, and fly because I think flying is so cool. But um, if, if you want to live a good life in a culture that bombards you with us, you're not listening to anything anymore, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, seriously, to fly? All right. Um, <laughs> Jesus. All right, we're focusing on Jesus. If you want to live a good life in a culture that bombards you uh, with a smorgasbord of consumer options, I say don't do it alone. That's my point. Don't make it up. Don't follow your heart. Life is too precious and too short to take a punt that risky. Yeah? You get one life. Walk in the tradition of billions of people before you Follow the teacher of Jesus from Nazareth and uh, learn what he learnt and follow what he taught. Uh, he said, come follow me and you will experience life and life to the full. You will experience abundant life. It's a beautiful promise and it works. So let's pause. Let's pause here before I keep going and I just want you to reflect just in silence. Is there anything that stands out to you? Uh, is there anything that connects? Okay, so this series uh, is about discipleship. Becoming the person uh, who you would be if Jesus was you. It's about becoming like Jesus and therefore living a life well lived. And look, discipleship is an enormous topic and I could obviously speak forever on it. I'm only going to do it for a short series of maybe six sermons. Uh, so I'm going to give a big picture overview of the principles of what it means to walk as a, a disciple of Jesus. And look, let me talk about briefly, uh, this is the framework that I think is useful, uh, why, how, what. It's a framework we use in Together Church from Simon Sinek. Uh, but basically the why of discipleship at the centre is that a disciple looks and acts and becomes more like Jesus, which is to be a disciple. And that's what I've just explained. Uh, the how of discipleship, these are the principles, so the timeless principles of, of what it means to live that out in your day-to-day -day practices, uh, to engage in the discipleship journey. And the how... Uh, or the what, sorry, of discipleship uh, are the many spiritual practices that you can do, the disciplines, the faith habits to live out discipleship day by day. So things like praying and eating together, uh, singing, coming to church, fasting, giving, serving, all those kinds of things. So look, I am not going to focus on the outside circle in this series. I'm not going to focus on the practices, the spiritual disciplines. I think at another stage we'll focus on some of those things and it'll be really valuable. But uh, you can't really win at those things if you don't understand the heart behind it. So the why and then also the how. And so in the how, I want to talk about a few principles of discipleship. I want to talk about what it means to die to self, so discipleship as self-denial. I want to talk about discipleship as imitation. I want to talk about what it means to hear and obey God's voice day by day as a practice. 
I want to talk about uh, how to create a balanced spirituality in your life. We call it up, in, and out. I'll talk about those practices. We're going to talk about what it means to have structured and organic rhythms of discipleship and also what it means to have multiplication and movement, a heart of movement at the centre of how you become a disciple and walk with Jesus. So some of those words won't make much sense to you now, but I will explain them over the next few weeks. And at the end of this series, my heart is that you will have the frameworks to begin or progress your journey as an apprentice of Jesus. And uh, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you're simply exploring, whether you've been a believer for a long time, whether you're re-exploring, whatever it is, I want to help you in your spiritual journey with the principles of discipleship in order to live a life or lived. Does that sound okay? Second part, look, I... Uh, and I want to share at least just one principle from the life of Jesus, but, but I think this is actually the most important one. It's like the central principle of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to live a life well lived. And, and that is to die to self. Really sexy topic, eh? Uh, to die to self. Okay, so look, Wolfgang Simpson, this German theologian, I really like him, he says this, If we cannot pray, your kingdom come, my kingdom go, then we have not understood the message of Jesus. It is about dying to self. You know, if, I, if we cannot pray, your kingdom come, my kingdom go, we have not mes- understood the message of Jesus. Basically, at, at the heart of, of the message that Jesus spoke and at the heart of what he lived was this message, uh, this principle of die to self. Uh, you know, he basically said, if, um, you know, we, we pray, um, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The point is that we can't pray, your kingdom come, if we aren't willing for our kingdom to disappear in some ways, if we aren't willing to die to self, because there's so much of our kingdom that stops God's kingdom from coming on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so look, as disciples, we need to die to self. We're called to lose our life, Jesus says, in order to gain it. He says, become the least if you want to become the greatest. He says, take up your cross and follow me. They're kind of really strong uh, commands from Jesus. And, and he promises us abundant life, a life of joy and love and peace and hope and purpose. But his imagination and definition of what it means to have abundance is actually really different than the secular vision. It's, it's a different imagination of abundance. Uh, abundant life is not accumulating stuff, it's not accumulating experiences, it's not doing what we want, when we want, as autonomous or independent individuals. That's not what he's talking about here. He gives a different vision of abundance, and uh, it's, it's, like a, it's about a rich inner life that flows outside, rather than outer life that flows in. You know, according to Jesus, the way of peace is not found by going up, it's found by going down. It's counter everything we know. It, it, it really is. He says that rather than cons- consumption, we find joy in contribution. He says that rather than autonomy, we actually find true freedom under authority. He says that we need to give in order to receive. We need to lose in order to gain. He says that we need to die to ourselves to find ourselves Uh, We don't find our true selves in ourselves. We die to ourselves to find ourselves. It's a totally upside-down counter-message to the world's message around us. So look, dying to self is one of the key principles of discipleship. Uh, And it's just so hard to get our head around it. It's not the water we swim in. The world says you need to be stronger and faster and fitter and leaner and younger and wealthier and more influential if you want to live abundantly. Jesus says, 
You've got to go down in order to go up. You don't need these things to have a, to a, to have a vibrant, abundant life. You need to keep your life, you lose your life. Uh, give without measure, forgive those who wrong you, confess your sins, don't, don't hide your sins, don't promote your wins, confess your sins, it's all backwards and upside down, uh, but it's the way of Jesus. And so as we lose our life and as we trust in Jesus, something deep happens inside our soul, inside our spirit, and it's different. We're filled with a joy and a peace and a love that is bigger than our bad days, and it's beautiful. So look, practically, I know this is conceptual, but practically, uh, dying to self can look a million different ways in practice. This is why it's a principle, and then you apply it in practice. Okay? So if, if you're a child, uh, it means taking the smaller piece of cake, even though it's not, it's not fair. You know, that would be dying to yourself, yeah? If you're a student, it might mean hanging out with the unpopular child, the unpopular kid, even if your so- social status goes down. Uh, if you're a teenager, it might mean actually staying and helping a teacher pack up the room, even though your friends have gone off to lunch. If you're a parent with young children, it might mean um, being the first to get up in the middle of the night instead of kind of pretending that you're asleep and hoping the other person will wake up first and get out of bed. We all know, we've all been there. Uh, if, if you're a parent with older children, you know, it's the first to say, being the first to model, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, um, I'm wrong. You know what I mean? Like this dying to self. If you're a worker, it might mean giving credit to a boss who got your promotion even though you really wanted it, and then you support them and champion them and help them. Die to self. Uh, If you are a retiree, maybe it's giving God your retirement, your time, your wealth, uh, and to serve and pour yourself out rather than do all the other things that you're entitled to in retirement because you deserve it and the world's about you. Do, Do you know what I mean? Like It's just such a different way of living. So I don't know what it means for you, but I know it's not a one-time decision. Dying to self is how we enter the kingdom. We repent, we say, I'm sorry for my sins, and we admit that we are not our own. But at the same time, it's more than that. It's a life of dying to self again and again in order to experience the joy and the peace and the abundant life that comes from Christ that lives within inside of us in all circumstances. And it's beautiful. So the aim is to look and act more like Jesus who rose from the dead. And we do that by dying to self. So I want to finish with a story that describes what this actually looks like. And um, look, billions of people have have died to self, have followed Jesus as apprentices of Jesus. And uh, they've followed his ways. But there's one story that stood stood out to me, and I think it's a beautiful story. It's uh, from a Catholic saint called Maximilian Kolbe. And look, Maximilian Kolbe uh, was a Franciscan friar and uh, he lived uh, around the time of Nazi Germany in World War II. And he was arrested in 1941 by the German Gestapo because he was uh, sheltering more than 2,000 Jews in his friary, which is beautiful in itself. And he was hiding the Jewish people and protecting them from the Nazis. And I want to finish with his story. Now, so Maximilian Kolbe, he, he was transferred to Auschwitz, which is in Poland, it's a... Uh, the, the most notorious death camp or concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And uh, rather than a name, he lost his name, as all prisoners did, and he was given a new name. Uh, he was prisoner 16670. And he was forced to work in horrendous conditions uh, in, in just freezing cold, bleak um, German 
camps. And look, this, this is a picture that uh, Kai and I took when we were in Poland. This is Auschwitz. This is the end of the line. Uh, so the train would come in, millions of people came, they were gassed, they were, they were killed, and they died. Uh, so we took this picture about 15 years ago. And look, Auschwitz is now a museum in Poland, and, uh, but it's, it's still a very harrowing place. This is another photo that we took. Uh, this, it, this was winter, and it was bitterly cold. And you know, when I say cold, like not Hobart cold, it was like painfully, it was painfully cold just to breathe. It was just a terrible, bleak pace. But you know, I, this story shows me that even in the darkest places, the light shines through Jesus, and it's beautiful. So, look, on uh, one day in the middle of 1941, the camp commander marched into Maximilian Kolbe's barracks, and he, he just yelling and screaming, uh, and he pulled everyone out, and he took them out, he put them in the freezing cold snow, and he lined up everyone from the bar barracks. You know, there was yelling, there was shouting, there was beatings, it was terrible. And uh, Colby was forced to line up with many, many people, freezing in the cold, and the Nazi commander just went on and on about a tirade of what had happened. And look, apparently someone from Colby's barracks had gone missing, they had escaped Auschwitz. And the commander was furious and wanted to know who had helped them escape, and he wanted to punish those from his barracks who must have known something about it. And so as a result, the commander said, I'm picking 10 men at random and they will be sent to block 13. Now, look, everyone at the time knew what block 13 was. It was the torture block. It was the home of the starvation bunker. And that's a place where there were tiny, dark cells and people were put in these cells with no food and no water, no light, no sound, uh, and they basically could lie on the floor in the cold and, and die. And that was the starvation bunker. In fact, some were so small that you could only stand and you died standing up. Pretty terrible place. Uh, so can you imagine, you know, the commander walks up and down the line, how terrified would you be, you know? And, uh, and he picks ten men. You. 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 You know, just, oh, can't imagine. And so ten men were chosen for death by starvation. And, and, and one man, uh, when he was chosen, he, he got on his knees and he cried and he said, have mercy on me, my wife, my children, you know, please, not me. And all of a sudden, uh, Maximilian Colby, he stepped forward. He voluntarily stepped forward and he said, choose me, uh, let me take this poor man's place. And the commander took him. He was replaced. And he went off with the ten men to block 13 to starve to death. Now, you know, the terrible thing is that no one had escaped. The, the prisoner was found dead in a toilet a few days later. Uh, but um, on August the 14th, 1941, after two weeks of starvation, Maximilian Colby died. And the beautiful thing is that records from the camp tell us that uh, he led the ten men in that camp hmm. in songs and prayer throughout that time and he was a priest to the end, and he was the last man to die. It's a beautiful story. Oh, sorry. Um, one, one commentator said this about Maximilian Colby, his life and his death. He said, Only a saint can stand firm with constancy and unwavering hope throughout life's many difficulties and sufferings. Only a saint can influence others to do the same, because only a saint knows the true that true and perfect peace is found in God alone.
For the saint, trials don't weaken, they fortify. Serenity and calmness amidst atrocities are not a sign of defeat, but of victory. For love is greater than hatred. Love is greater than hatred. So, when the love of Jesus captures our hearts and transforms who we are, he transforms us and others. And the mechanism of that is dying to self. You know, on the one hand, dying to self is a, a crazy idea. But on the other hand, it's the wisest path that one can ever take. It's the path of the disciple of Jesus. And honestly, I've, I've struggled with this story. And I've struggled because, uh, on the one hand, it's inspiring, but it's also very confronting. You know, I... I've wrestled, you know, what would motivate a man like Colby to sacrifice his life for a stranger? What, you know, it's it's admirable, of course, but is it actually a life well lived? What did he actually achieve by doing this and was it worth the sacrifice? It's a question I've had, if I'm really honest. Would I do that and what is the point? Is that a life well lived? You know what I mean? And I was thinking and wrestling with it and praying with it and, and I suppose praying and wrestling with Jesus' words to die to self. And, and I came across just a random comment by a, a person, John Mark Comer, in a completely unrelated sermon. And he said this, and it answered the question for me. He said that the best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. <laughs> and it made sense. You know, like we may seek Jesus for the good life, because we want to live an abundant life that works. And if we walk in his ways, we won't be disappointed. But there is actually something better than the good life. The purpose of life is not to live it well. There is something more abundant than the secular vision for those who follow Jesus. And, and the best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. Does that, does that make sense? You know, Maximilian Kohler, yes, he, like us, he, he may have desired the good life, but somewhere along the line, as he learned to follow Jesus, he experienced the risen Christ, the God who is actually alive and who speaks to us and walks with us and, and interacts with our lives today. And as he did that, the rest didn't matter. We encounter Christ on the road of discipleship and we meet a God who loves us, who made us and who gave his life for us. And as we do so, it, he becomes even more potent and powerful than the good life itself. So we all want to live well, and by God, hopefully we all will. But we, we actually can't promise that. But, but what we can promise is that Jesus loves you, that he walks with you, he is risen from the dead, and he has friendship with you. And I think that's beautiful. It's, it's better than all the travel and money and power in the world. So the best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. He is our reward, he is our good life, and a life well lived is a life with Jesus. So let's, ha- let's just pause, and um, I suppose let's just have a moment of silence. Close your eyes, to, or just be in silence, but maybe open your hands up, because I love a posture of learning, a posture of, of listening to, to what the Spirit of God might say. Now, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus and, um, you know, ask, ask the Spirit of God, what is God saying to you? 
What does it mean um, for you to die to self this week? Are we following Jesus for the good life or are we following him for himself? If you're exploring faith, then I would like you to ask yourself, how might you want to respond? You know, how, what connects, what doesn't connect? You don't have to agree in everything I say, um, but what stands out that you might want to live out this week? What does it mean for you to die to self? So, Father God, we just ask that you will speak to us. And Spirit of God, thank you that you speak to all of us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey. And we just ask that you will help us to take one more step towards the good life, towards the life we lived. Help us to be spiritual beings, uh, having a human experience. Help us to lift our eyes up to the clouds. Help us to know your love and to meet you. Help us to know that when we speak to you, you speak back. And, uh, and I pray that... Um, we will be a bit like Maximilian Coley and that somehow you will help us to die to self in little ways this week. Spirit of God, we ask you to speak to us in this silent place now.